Turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. And while you're turning there, I want to review from this morning our preaching plan for the next several months, actually. Tonight, uh, we are uh, finishing off our series right now on the glorious gospel. And then I want to spend uh, a week and a half or so on three messages addressing a biblical view of God. Um, One, particularly in light of our current crisis in the world and in the nation that that we're facing. And I'm calling this series, Our Big God. Part one, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. Part two, we're going to look at the providence of God. And part three, we're going to do a test case. And that test case is, what about babies who die? How does... Our big God in his sovereignty and in his providence. How does this work out in his test case? And so we'll test from scripture these important concepts of the sovereignty and providence of God. And if you can understand and grasp how God works in those ways, even through the the most tragic of situations, then you'll be a long ways toward grasping who God is, our big God. Now, that same Sunday evening where we finish that series off in the morning, we're going to get back to the Pentateuch and continue the Pentateuch on Sunday evenings. On Sunday mornings, then, we'll finish the Gospel of John in a brief series I'm calling Love Your Church. John's Gospel ends with Jesus preparing his disciples for their lifetime of ministry to the Church of Jesus Christ, and this is about to be established. The church is just a couple of pages later in Acts 1 and 2. And all of that will prepare us for Sunday mornings then to begin 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, one of the great epistles of Paul concerning the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm very excited. We have a very rich, rich time ahead of us. But for this evening, we come now to the final message in our series, The Glorious Gospel. And in John 18, 19, and 20, We've put together a gospel presentation based on the truths that are embedded in this narrative of the death and the resurrection of Christ. So here is the final version of our gospel presentation we've been building over the past weeks. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for his suffering Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. And Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and only hope of salvation. You must believe that Christ truly died and was truly raised from the dead, thus completing payment for your sin. Only in Christ can you have peace with God. And tonight, we finish off our gospel presentation. Therefore, repent of your disbelief. Turn away from your love of sin and turn instead to Christ the Savior. All our messages so far in the glorious gospel have had subtitles aimed at what you must believe to be a Christian. Believe the willingness of Christ. Believe the substitution of Christ. Believe your need for Christ. Believe the payment of Christ. Believe the kingdom of Christ. Believe the suffering of Christ. Believe the sorrow of Christ. Believe the only option of Christ. Believe the death of Christ. Believe the resurrection of Christ. And believe the peace of Christ. All that is left is not another thing to believe, but rather the final step, repent of disbelief. Not believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation from sin That is the ultimate sin for which all the lost will be condemned. In fact, Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. In fact, the New Testament has a name for those who refuse Christ. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. They're called unbelievers. And it comes from the root Greek word 
harpatho, and it means to persuade, to convince. And so unbelievers are the apatheo, the unpersuaded, the unconvinced, which came to mean the disobedient. Romans 11.30 says to the Christian that at one time you were disobedient. Same word, apatheo. Disobedient to what? Well, I think a better question is disobedient to whom? Disobedient to God. Disobedient to the gospel of grace offered freely in Christ. The unbeliever, the apatheo, the disobedient, is like the old man in Scotland who refused to believe the pleading of Pastor John Payton in the mid-1800s. And as Pastor Payton sat at the man's deathbed, begging him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In one final act of rebellion, this old man, this dying man, lifted his fist in the air with what little strength he had left. And he said, I believe there is a devil and a God and a just God too, but I have hated him in life and I hate him in death. What a sad and fearful end to a life that could have laid hold of salvation. Well, in our text this evening, John highlights the familiar apostle Thomas. And Thomas really serves as an illustration. He serves as an object lesson to us concerning the subject of unbelief and then belief. In fact, this account with Thomas really takes us through the progression of the gospel upon the unbeliever. Now, Thomas certainly does believe Jesus Christ, but he hadn't yet grasped that Jesus was raised from the dead. He hadn't understood this. And so he really serves as a sample of this progression. And so as we work our way through this text, we want to look at four stages, four stages of the progression of the gospel of Christ upon the unbeliever, the unpersuaded, the disobedient. The first stage of the progression of the gospel we'll call the conflict of faith. The conflict of faith. Now, just to get us caught up here, Jesus has met the other ten disciples, plus two men from Emmaus, plus some other followers, on the evening of his resurrection. Then, sometime that week, we pick up in verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here's good old Thomas. He had a nickname, Didymus, twin, he had a twin brother or sister, and so Jesus and the other others sometimes just called him twin. It was a good nickname. Now, by now, it was common knowledge that Jesus had been speared in the side after his death, and so when Thomas requests to see that, that scar, that is based on common knowledge. And we see here that verses 24 and 25 take place between Resurrection Day and verse 26, in which they'll meet together here shortly. I want to remind you of something as we come to this passage. Remember that when John was writing this gospel in the mid-80s AD or so, an early form of the heresy of Gnosticism was already forming. And one of the facets of Gnosticism, one of the subsets of Gnosticism was called Docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism believed that Christ only appeared to come in the flesh. He only seemed to be fully human And it only seemed like he died on the cross. And we pointed out a couple of messages ago that that was a belief picked up by Islam a few centuries later. And now Thomas plays the part of the potential docetist who does not believe Jesus was raised in the flesh. But we need to understand who Thomas is. Thomas, of course, has received the nickname Doubting Thomas. In fact, it's so common that it's still what we call a skeptic of anything. We say he's a doubting Thomas. I think a better term would be to call him hurting Thomas. Hurting Thomas. He wasn't with the disciples eight days earlier. 
Presumably he had withdrawn. He had separated himself from the group. They hadn't done anything to him, but his Lord was dead. And certainly they were only a grim reminder of that fact. Being with those who had been with Christ was only a reminder. Thomas was a twin. He knew in a way that most people don't fully grasp the depths of love and connection that can exist between two people. How much did Thomas love Jesus? How devoted to Christ was he? Well, we get some idea back in John chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. Let me just tell you the story and remind you of it. This is right near the end of Jesus' ministry. And when the chief priests and the elders now were obviously out to murder Jesus. And everyone knew it. Well, Jesus at this time had a good friend who fell ill, Lazarus. Word was brought to Jesus of the illness of Lazarus. But in his sovereign plan, Jesus determined to wait to go to Lazarus until after Lazarus had died. And so that way Christ might be glorified in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. One little problem. Lazarus was in the village of Bethany. Bethany was just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, the most dangerous place on earth for Jesus and for the followers of Jesus at this moment. And so in his total knowledge, one day Jesus announced to his disciples in John eleven fifteen, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. And then came the words which proved the character of Thomas. Jesus said, but let us go to him. What did Thomas hear when Jesus said, but let us go to him, to Lazarus? Thomas heard something like this. Let us go to where I'm going to be killed and all of you will be arrested and killed as well. That's what he heard. What did Thomas say? Now, before I remind you of what he said, we should make a note about Thomas. Thomas is barely mentioned in the other three gospels, only one time each in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he gets seven mentions in John's gospel. He's very important to the story. You remember, what is John's gospel all about? It's all about convincing the reader to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas is one who will believe. And so Jesus has said, let's go to Lazarus. And Thomas has heard, let's go where we can all be arrested and killed. And what does Thomas say? John eleven sixteen. so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Not die with Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. That we may die with Christ. And Thomas epitomizes what a true, devoted, faithful love for the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. Someone willing to die with Christ. And by the way, he's leading the way in convincing his fellow disciples to die with Christ as well. Thomas was devoted to Christ. He loved him. If Christ was going to die, listen, then Thomas was determined to die with him. So why did Thomas stay away now? Why had he disappeared from the scene? And why was he unwilling to believe that Jesus was alive unless he touched him and saw him with his own eyes? Because he's hurting Thomas. We won't know for certain until heaven. But there's a very real and common phenomenon that happens among survivors of any sort of tragedy leading to a loved one's death. And that is the tremendous feeling of guilt that you didn't die also. Thomas fully intended to die with Christ. He said so. He tried to lead others to go with him. But Thomas didn't die. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was arrested, Thomas ran away with the others. Jesus died. Thomas lived. And it's reasonable to assume then that not only was he torn up in grief at the death of Christ, but very likely he was experiencing tremendous guilt that he didn't die with him. He's not so much doubting Thomas as he is hurting Thomas. But his statement, the starting point of the gospel progression, the conflict of faith, that serves as an object lesson. Thomas said, I will never believe. And in this context, he's specifically afraid he'll be hurt. He'll be disappointed if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. 
But the lesson to John's readers, to those reading this gospel, is clear. You can't have a more headstrong and recalcitrant statement concerning Christ. I will never believe. Now, right now, in your homes, many of you are smiling at that statement. I will never believe. Why are you smiling? Because you said that once. That was you. You made that statement, and yet God, in his grace, opened your mind and your eyes and your ears to the glory and the love of Christ. Many of you dug your heels in against God, and yet he broke you, and he helped you, and he enabled you to believe. And how did God do this? Well, he did it through the proclamation of the gospel, which Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. That's where you started. You started in the first stage of that progression of the gospel, the conflict of faith. But in the second stage, this faithful proclamation of the gospel, you came to what we'll call the call of faith. The call of faith or the call to faith. Verse 26. Now we come to our meeting. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus keeps doing this. He suddenly appears in this locked room. And I imagine that Jesus must have enjoyed that thoroughly. Remember, he's fully human. And the chance to startle your friends is always somewhat amusing. But the the doors are locked again. Remember back in verse 19, for fear of the Jews. This scene is basically just repeating what happened eight days earlier. Now, very likely, this is a Sunday. They would reckon from Sunday to Sunday as eight days. We would just say a week later. But this appearance of Christ, eight days later, seems to be primarily for Thomas's benefit. Verse 27, Jesus turns his attention to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Did you notice, by the way, the omniscient, all-knowing Jesus is basically quoting Thomas verbatim? Verse 25, Thomas said, Unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus said, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knew exactly what needed to be said because he knew what Thomas had said. And so he's graciously offering Thomas all the evidence he needs to believe. He's not trying to withhold evidence, and he's certainly, by the way, not demanding blind faith at all. The Christian faith is not blind faith. For a period of 1,600 years, never wavering in theme, purpose, view of God, never contradicting itself, and putting together a perfectly woven redemptive story from the beginning of time to the end of time, not to mention the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the lives of countless millions of believers in Christ over the past 2,000 years. Our faith is not a blind faith. It is laden with evidence. And now comes the call to faith. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is the next stage in the progression of the gospel, the kindness of God to command us away from disbelief. Do not disbelieve. By the way, this is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus isn't saying, Thomas, I'm I'm praying for you. I really hope that everything works out for you. It's a command. In fact, just a, a brief survey of preaching in parts of the New Testament tells us that the call to faith is strong. It's persuasive. It's aggressive. For example, the Apostle Paul reviewed the preaching that he had brought to the Corinthian church, to, the, to Corinth, some years before writing uh, 1 Corinthians. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 2.4, speaking of the preaching he brought, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. In other words, Paul wasn't merely using a worldly means of persuasion, but he was preaching an empowered gospel. Peter, his monumental Pentecost sermon of Acts 2, just ends with commands. He says, repent and be baptized, 
Every one of you. And you can picture him pointing in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he commands, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In the very next chapter, Peter is preaching in the temple courtyard and he tells the Jews that they crucified Christ and he tells them, he gives them commands, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 3.19, Peter again, he's arrested along with John and before the same council which crucified Jesus, he proclaimed in Acts 4 verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul, preaching to a crowd in Pisidian Antioch, he preached a gospel sermon and he closed with a warning in Acts 13, 38-41, which we can boil down. Basically, he said, beware lest you be among those who will not believe. There's no I'm so glad you came today. There's no, please fill out a guest card. There's no, we hope you've been blessed. No, Paul says, watch out that you don't perish as those who don't believe, who will not believe, who refuse Christ. For those of you who have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't say to you, I hope you'll believe. I don't say to you, it would be great if you would believe. I I don't say to you, I'm really thinking you might believe No, I'm telling you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that God commands you to believe. He exhorts you to believe. He demands that you believe. You are ordered to believe by God himself. For if you will not obey, you will remain the apetheo, the unpersuaded, the unconvinced, the disobedient, whom God will have no choice to justly pour out his wrath. Now, was the call to faith, the call of faith that Jesus gave, gave, the command, do not disbelieve but believe, was it convincing to Thomas? Well, let's see. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And by the way, did you notice something? Jesus offered to let Thomas touch his wounds and he didn't do it. He didn't need to. He simply believed. You started in the first stage of the progression of the gospel, the conflict of faith. In the second stage, you heard the call to faith. The third stage of the progression of the gospel, the gospel will call the confession of faith. The confession of faith. And we just heard it. In verse 28, Thomas' exclamation of, my Lord and my God. This is an incredibly weighty confession. My Lord. Thomas has pledged full allegiance, full loyalty to Christ. He calls him Lord. It's the common Greek word kurios, which often refers to deity. But in this case, it refers to Jesus as master, as my owner. And then he says, and my God, clearly referring to Christ as theos. Now, in the entire Gospel of John, this verse, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, this is an incredibly unique and climactic moment. I'm going to tell you why in a moment. I want you to keep that in your mind, that this verse, chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God, is in many ways the climactic moment of the Gospel of John. Keep that in your mind. Set it off to the side. Because John's gospel here has been saturated with the proclamation of the deity of Christ. My Lord and my God. And I want to review this with you. And so let's turn back all the way to John chapter 1. And we're just going to do a quick little tour here. And we're going to assign some names to the descriptors of the the deity of Christ. John chapter 1. The gospel opens with this great announcement of the true identity of Christ. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case there's any doubt as to the identity of the Word, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we'll assign a little label here. Jesus is God by virtue of proclamation, proclamation. Turn to John chapter 2. 
John chapter 2, Jesus goes with his mother to a wedding in Cana, probably a relative's wedding. The wine runs out, and Jesus instructed the servants to fill six large stone jars with water. Chapter 2, verse 8, and he said to them, now draw out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And we put it this way, Jesus transformed H2O into Merlot instantly. And so Jesus is God by virtue of, here's another label, transformation. Transformation. Turn to John chapter 3, very end of the chapter. The very end of the chapter, John the Baptist is preaching about Christ. And he says in verse 35, second to the last verse in the chapter, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The power of life and death belongs to Christ. And so Jesus is God by virtue of authorization. Authorization. Turn to John chapter 4, right near the end of the chapter. Jesus is in Cana again, and an official's son who is ill in the neighboring city of Capernaum an official is, is coming to Jesus. His son is ill in Capernaum. The official finds Jesus and begs Jesus to heal his son. John chapter 4, verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to feel better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And so what did Jesus do with this child? He restored him. And so Jesus is God by virtue of restoration. Restoration. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the time of a feast and he comes upon a man who's paralyzed for 38 years. John chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus revitalized this man's body. And so Jesus is God by virtue of rejuvenation. He's able to rejuvenate. Turn to John chapter 6. Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee and a huge crowd follows him and there's a problem. They're hungry. And so Jesus gets from a nearby boy five barley loaves, two little fish. John 6 verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass at the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. What was he doing when he distributed them? He was creating new bread. And so Jesus is God by virtue of creation. Creation. Still in John 6. Late that night, the disciples got into a boat. They faced a typical Sea of Galilee surprise storm. Jesus wasn't with them. Where was he? Verse 19 of chapter 6. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. Jesus transcends the laws of physics, which he created in the first place. And so Jesus is God by virtue. Now, there's no word for this in English or any other language. So we're going to have to make up a word for walking on water. You ready for this? Don't be alarmed. Jesus is God by virtue of aqua ambulation. How do you like that one? Aqua ambulation, walking on water. Still in John chapter 6. Jesus makes the first of many pronouncements about himself, all with the key phrase, I am. This harkens back to Exodus 3 when God declares himself to be I am. John 6 verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is the one who provides the food, so to speak, of eternal life. He is the food of eternal life that has come down from heaven. He declares himself to be 
I am. And so Jesus is God by virtue of his declaration. Turn to John chapter 7, near the end of the chapter. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. This is a feast with great significance concerning looking for Messiah, God in the flesh. Chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is asserting here that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to give new hearts of spiritual life to those who would believe to the spiritually dead. Jesus is God by virtue of his regeneration. Regeneration. Turn to John chapter 8. Jesus is going to make another I am statement. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the spiritual light of God himself promised all the way back in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 29, 19 gets very specific. It says that a coming spiritual restoration will, quote, out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And in fact, Jesus demonstrates this spiritual lifting of blindness with a physical demonstration. Turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus comes across a man who is born blind. John chapter 9, verse 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am, here it is again, the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He came back seeing. So what would we call this? Jesus is God by virtue of his illumination. His illumination. Turn to John chapter 10. Jesus uses the metaphor of sheep and a sheep pen to illustrate that that he is the only way of salvation from sin with another I am statement. John 10 verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He invites all who would believe in him to enter into the safety of salvation from sin. So Jesus is God by virtue of his invitation. Still in John chapter 10, Jesus continues with the metaphor of sheep in yet another I am statement. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, the divine sacrifice who will lay down his life to save his sheep He will satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And you know this word, you've learned this word. Jesus is God by virtue of propitiation. Propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement of God. Turn to John chapter 11. One of the most dramatic proofs of the deity of Christ. His friend Lazarus has died, as we've said. And before he does anything, he tells Lazarus' sister Martha what's about to happen. John 11, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And then he makes another radical claim, another I am statement in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then, of course, he demonstrates very tangibly that he is the resurrection. He is the life. In verse 43, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus has the power as the one with life in himself to resurrect, to resuscitate the dead. And so Jesus is God by virtue of resuscitation. 
resuscitation. Turn with me to John 12. Jesus is expressing his resolve to fulfill his father's mission for him, no matter how difficult it seems to be. John 12, verse 27. Jesus is speaking, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, when someone lifts up a quick prayer to heaven, calling God his Father, and God answers audibly in a thunderous voice, then the one praying must be the one and only Son of God. This is clearly verified by the thunderous voice. So Jesus is God by virtue of verification. Verification. Turn with me to John chapter 13, right near the end. John 13, Jesus is now in the upper room with his disciples. Judas has been exposed and kicked out. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And yet, here is God glorifying Jesus, God the Son. And so Jesus is God by virtue of glorification. Turn to John 14. We're still in the upper room. If you don't believe Jesus is God by now, there's nothing else I can say. But we're going to keep going. John 14, they're still in the upper room. Jesus makes yet another I am statement. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only Jesus can give humanity access to God. He alone can join unholy man and holy God by his sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus mediates for man. Jesus is God by virtue of his mediation. Turn to John 15. Right at the beginning in verse 1, Jesus makes another crucial I am statement. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. He is the life-giving vine, by which all who would be saved must be connected as branches. And we see here very clearly that He judges who the true branches are and who are not. He regulates who is saved. And so Jesus is God by virtue of his regulation. He regulates those who are saved and who are not. Turn to John 16. Jesus is called the, called the word of God. He's going to proclaim that his father's knowledge is his knowledge and his knowledge is his father's knowledge. John 16 verse 15. All that the Father has, speaking of the knowledge of the gospel, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What he's saying is that this knowledge that is the Father's, that is also his, will be revealed to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God by virtue of revelation. Revelation. He reveals this knowledge. Turn to John 17. Jesus reminisces with his father in prayer about times in eternity past. John 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is speaking here of the perfect devotion and love and harmony between God the Father and God the Son that has always been. Each loving and esteeming the other long before the world existed. And so Jesus is God by virtue of his adoration. His adoration. Turn to John 18. And yet another and the final I am statement. At his own arrest, this time Jesus makes certain witnesses experience that he is the great I am. John 18 verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He could have simply annihilated his enemies. He is all-powerful, after all, at that moment. But to get to the cross for our sake, to pay for our sin, he didn't. But he could have dominated the situation, and he demonstrated that he could have. And so Jesus is God by virtue of his domination. Turn to John 19. Jesus, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament of a Messiah who would save his people from their sins, he's come all the way to the cross to rescue and to release sinners from their sin debt to God by paying the wages of sin for them. And now he completes this payment that is required of him. John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. A payment to God that only God could pay. Thus, Jesus is God by virtue of liberation. He has liberated sinners from bondage and eternal destruction and punishment. John chapter 20. Now we come to the most blatant and obvious proof of the deity of Christ. On Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene arrived to an empty tomb and ran to get the disciples. Peter and John then ran to the tomb and we come to chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Jesus has conquered death. He has overthrown sin. He's proven the triumph over the grave. He's taken captive the very thing which has enslaved mankind. Therefore, Jesus is God by virtue of his subjugation. He has subjugated. He has vanquished sin and death. I hope I've convinced you that all through John's gospel, the deity of Christ is made obvious that Jesus is God by virtue of proclamation, transformation, authorization, restoration, rejuvenation, creation, aquaambulation, declaration, regeneration, illumination, invitation, propitiation, resuscitation, verification, glorification, mediation, regulation, revelation, adoration, domination, liberation, subjugation. Now I told you, keep in your mind that this verse, chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, that that's a climactic and a pinnacle moment in John's gospel. John's gospel has been declaring over and over and over again the deity of Christ. But Thomas, Thomas goes down in history because this is the first time in the entire gospel that someone other than John, who is the narrator, proclaims the deity of Christ. Thomas, far from being the doubter, is the very first person in the Gospel of John openly saying, Jesus is God. He's the first one. It is the climactic moment in this story. And that is the only true confession of faith. Jesus is God, fully God, in every way possible, and therefore Jesus is your Lord. He is your master. He is your owner. He is your keeper. There is no middle ground. You cannot try Jesus. You cannot dabble in Christianity. You cannot experiment with Christ. Either you are, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ, or you are not. Either you belong to him or you don't. There is no in-between ground. But now we see the final stage in the progression of the gospel. We've seen the conflict of faith, the call to faith, the confession of faith. The final stage is the confirmation of faith. The confirmation of faith, that confidence that you are saved. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, this is often taken as a rebuke to Thomas. It's not. He did believe. That's exactly what Jesus called him to do. In fact, I want to show you that Jesus is talking to many more than just to Thomas. And to help us understand that, we have to make an important note about the tenses used here in Jesus' statement. 
in all of John's gospel, those who said they believe all believed based on what they saw. They directly experienced Christ. Chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist, I have seen and borne witness. Chapter 20, verse 8, John the Apostle saw the empty tomb and believed. Mary Magdalene saw the Lord and believed. Chapter 20, verse 18. The only possible exception in John's gospel where someone believes without seeing is the royal official in chapter 4 who believed Jesus would heal his son before Jesus actually did it. But even then, his faith was verified by sight. John 40, John 4, rather, verses 50 and 53 tells us that he himself believed after he saw what Jesus did. But now, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, stay with me. He says this in the past tense. And yet, there's nobody in John's gospel who is believed without seeing. So, to whom is Jesus speaking? He's speaking to the readers. He's speaking to those reading this account long after it actually happened, to those who were not there, who can't possibly be there. Can I put it this way? When Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, Jesus is speaking to you. That's for you. This is a call to the reader to place his faith in Christ. And here's the confirmation of faith. Here's the confidence Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Where have you seen that word blessed before? In the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. A Beatitude is a specific formula, a saying. And the Beatitude formula is not just a condition for personal happiness. Sometimes Beatitudes are, are taught that way. They're not just a condition for personal happiness. A Beatitude is a declaration that you have been accepted by God of being a true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus said, says you are blessed, that means you're saved. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, everyone reading this gospel after the fact who believe. If you have believed, having never seen Christ in the same way those in the gospel of John did, Jesus says you are blessed. This is a declaration, a confirmation of your faith. You have nothing to offer God but sin and degradation and rebellion and failure to obey Him. So why would He offer salvation to you? Why would He do that? Well, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 tells us and it has nothing to do with you. It says, He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. How do we understand this? The early 20th century Dutch-American theologian Gerhardus Voss, he was once asked, how do we know that God will never stop loving us? You know what his answer was? He said, God will never stop loving us because he never started. God has always loved those that he would choose for salvation. Unbelief. Unbelief is the chief sin for which mankind will be condemned. But all you must do is believe. Repent of your disbelief. Confess that Jesus is God. Confess that he is your master, your owner, your Lord, Profess your allegiance to him, just like Thomas did. And all the glories of eternity with Christ will be yours. What happened to our friend Thomas? After the ascension of Christ into heaven, Thomas would faithfully carry the gospel to the world for the sake of Christ. He preached the gospel in Babylon. And eventually he would make his way to India. He arrived in India in 52 A.D., and he was the first to bring the gospel to multiple parts of the nation. He was the first to bring the gospel to the ancient Hindus. After a brief, brief time on the northern coast, his first project was to plant seven, count them, seven churches on the southwestern coast of India near modern-day Kerala. 
A 17th century history of Thomas written by a descendant of one of his very first converts is called the Toma Parvom, the Songs of Thomas. This historical source claims that Thomas first ministered to Jews who had settled in India. 40 of them were converted and then 3,000 Brahmin Hindus were converted. He proclaimed the gospel. He planted churches. He built church buildings with them by funds raised by the new believers. There are still churches in India today named after Thomas. He proclaimed the gospel. He built churches faithfully for two decades before the one who said he would not believe unless he placed his hands into the spear wounds of Christ. After two decades of faithful service, Thomas gave his life at the hands of jealous Hindu priests who speared him to death on December 21st of 72 AD. And while we kind of chuckle at Thomas's early statement in John 11, let us go also that we may die with him. In reality, that is precisely what Thomas did. Thomas believed, and you must believe as well, for that is the glorious gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the example of Thomas, one who had trouble with his faith at first and yet fully believed in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he proclaimed his allegiance. He called him my Lord. He proclaimed Jesus as his master, my Lord. And he proclaimed Jesus as fully God, my Lord and God. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is watching this, that they would fall to their knees if they have never received Christ as Savior, if they have never acknowledged that they need to repent of their disbelief, they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to place their sins at the foot of the cross and have them covered with the precious blood of Christ, never to be seen again, never to be heard from again, that every sin that we would offend God with is now put away from your presence. I pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl at this very moment listening to this message to repent of their disbelief, to present their sins to Christ as filthy and disgusting, to be covered, to be paid for, to be abandoned. Lord, might you save many through this message of the gospel, the glorious gospel. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.